Last week we talked about this spiritual path as really being one of remembering, of continually reconnecting with what's important or what's true. And tonight I'd like to talk about the way that that is made possible in, in the sense of taking refuge, what we take refuge in that all ways of transformation are really a movement from feeling some way small or limited to taking refuge in something that's more transcendent. In the Buddhist tradition, there's a formal description of the refuges, and they cover three general arenas. But these kind of three arenas are really found in most um, paths that I've encountered. The first one, is called taking refuge in the Buddha. And what that really means is taking refuge in our own awakening nature. That the Buddha is not considered to be some external and different and supreme figure, but rather the potential or possibility of wakefulness, of being enlightened, that is within all of us. So that's the first refuge, taking refuge in our own inherent wakefulness. The second, taking refuge in the Dharma, is taking refuge in the truths that help to awaken us and they get reflected in our awakening. It's what we come to realize as the truths of the path. The third refuge is taking refuge in the Sangha. And Sangha is the community or web of life to which we all belong. Chogyam Trungpa describes it kind of like this, that we're like beings that get shipwrecked and we discover land and we go, phew, land, you know, and that's the ways that we anchor into the world, our ways of connecting with other people or money or prestige or whatever. We go, oh, land, there's something to hold on to only discover that this, this island that we're shipwrecked on is being eaten away by the ocean. We come to realize that everything that we're holding on to gets taken away in some way. These bodies age, get sick and die, as do other bodies that we fall in love with. Everything changes and the pleasures that we enjoy are quite fleeting. So for many of us, it becomes obvious that what we might have at earlier stages in our life have looked towards as maybe being where we could find happiness really can't offer that. So we take refuge in something larger, in our own potential to be awake, in the truths that really connect us with what matters, and in each other, not in a dependent way, but in a way that can really free us, that can open us. So tonight I'd like to just talk about that third refuge, the refuge of Sangha, of community. The Buddha sat under the Bodhi tree and sat all night and awakened to some very profound truths about how this world is. And one of the truths that he discovered, as many of you know, are that everything's changing. There's nothing we can hold on to. It's all radically impermanent. But what he discovered was that it's not a random kind of impermanence, but rather there's a conditioned way of that impermanence, that all aspects of existence condition all others. It's called the law of causality. Also described as dependent co-arising. In simplest terms, this just means everything affects everything else. You can't describe one experience without also describing all the ingredients or influences that went into that experience. That all the factors of our lives subsist in a web of mutual causality. So what does that mean right here, sitting here? Here you are. And this moment's experience is conditioned by what? It's conditioned by the cars that have decided to drive on River Road tonight. 
hence some sound we hear. It's conditioned by whoever uh, made the floor, the trees that offered their bodies to make wood here, and it's conditioned by what you ate today and how much you slept last night and what it was like to be at work with other people today if you went to work. And it's conditioned by who's sitting next to you and it's conditioned by the ways your parents felt towards each other and by El Nino and a million other things. We cannot isolate any moment and say this is due to that. There are just uncountable factors. There's a saying that to make an apple pie from scratch, we need to recreate the universe. You get that? Everything's connected. You know what it's like to be with different people in your life and find they bring out totally totally disparate dimensions of you, that with one person you might feel like this controlling, manipulative, monster-type person, and then you can be somewhere else and feel benevolent and expansive and angelic and kind, and then with somebody else feel kind of paranoid and afraid of their judgment. And You know how that is, that these different parts of us are brought out? One of the realizations of dependent co-arising, of all the conditioning that creates us is that there's no separate abiding self that exists. Any moment, who we are is just a conditioned result of many other things in process this moment. We discover that actually the sense of a separate self is really a constructed fiction. It gives a sense of continuity, but it's constructed. This becomes, this is words that are sometimes not so easy to understand, but as we meditate and really pay attention to changing experience within, it starts becoming real obvious that we only exist by thinking about ourselves, having thoughts about a self. That when our thinking begins to quiet down or when we begin to sense the space around thinking, there's no separate self there. And then we become free into the wider dimensions of life that are our true home. And this is Sangha. This is community. When we're not so caught in thinking we're a separate, isolated self, we begin to sense the whole world that we're related to, the world of relationship. The challenge is there's a tremendous, huge amount of habitual conditioning to think we're separate. I mean, how many of us spend much time really feeling connected to, related to, and belonging to the universe, right? And yet there's some intuition within us that knows that's truth, and yet we fight it. We keep reconstructing a sense of separateness. The Buddha described how we do it, that we feel that we're separate, and then we organize our life around it. We spend a lot of time defending ourselves against what seems threatening and trying to grasp and accumulate and make more of a self because we feel not enough. And this creates stress. I think that's what the meaning of stress is, is that ongoing pressure to protect ourselves from danger and to in some way compensate for feeling not enough. And we have different ways that we use to relieve that stress, different ways of distracting ourselves so we don't have to face that basic discomfort of, I'm not enough, I'm separate, I'm insufficient, and I need to defend, because that is painful to sit in. So we distract ourselves. I was talking with a friend a few weeks ago about just the ways, we each have our own particular set of habits on how we keep ourselves distracted so we, we don't have to face what's really difficult. And she sent me, about three days ago, she sent this thing to me. <laughs> and this is from the internet, and it's described as 30 ways to relieve everyday stress. And this is just a sense of the wisdom of our contemporary culture. Pop some popcorn without putting the lid on. <laughs> when someone says, have a nice day, tell them you have other plans. <laughs> Fill out your tax form using Roman numerals. Stare at people through the tines of a fork and pretend they're in jail. 
I'll risk this one. Buy a box of condoms, ask the cashier where the fitting rooms are, and ask for help. <laughs> <laughs> Replace the filling of a Twinkie with ketchup and put it back in the wrapper. Anyway, that's just contemporary culture's way of doing it. We all have our ways, though, you know, ways of trying to feel better. For many of us, it's to sleep a whole lot or to eat too much, or to take drugs, to smoke, caffeine. We all have our ways. For most, it's busyness, being workaholic, trying to earn money, trying to earn more money and more money. You know the Yiddish saying that, if you have money, you are wise and good-looking and can sing well, too. <laughs> it's a big one in this culture. <laughs> And then there's all this pressure, this stress around making the right decision. You know that one? Like they we're constantly feeling like there's this self that's navigating and we're always at a difficult juncture making an important decision that could really make us happy or ruin our lives. You know, and then Marcel Proust says, all our final decisions are made in a state of mind that is not going to last. That's a toughie, right? So there's an enormous angst that circles around this sense of a separate self that needs to kind of battle through life to make it. There's angst and there's real suffering in that we feel lonely. Most people I know describe feeling quite lonely, especially the ones that are surrounded by lots of people. It's a strange thing. There's loneliness, and then there's a sense of not quite trusting that we're lovable. Because if we're separate, there's a reason for that sense of being separate. And there's that not enough sense that makes us feel that if people really knew us, they wouldn't love us. So refuge in the Sangha, how to begin to free ourselves from the conditioning of being in such an isolated bubble and really sense that we belong. You all know the story of the Buddha sitting under the Bodhi tree, and there's a part of it I've told some of you just to say again, was that all through the night he was able to be with the assaults of Mara. Mara are the assaults of greed and of aversion and hatred and so on. And what he did was put his hand out as, and when those forces would come towards him, he would touch them with his hand, and, which was connected to his heart, and turn them into flower petals at his feet. He met everything with heart and with awareness. And so he went through the night that way and in that way woke up and started to really understand the nature of how life is. But the forces of Mara didn't retreat until the Buddha put his hand on the earth and called on the earth goddess, the mother of the universe, Sangha, relationship, the earth, you know, to bear witness, to help him. And it was only then, when the Buddha establishes belonging to this web of life and asking for help, that the forces of Mara retreated. Now that's a profound part of the myth of the Buddha. Whether you consider it a myth, story, or truth, that's profound because what it says is we're not here to do it alone. This idea of going off to a cave and working real hard so we can wake up our heart and mind and be free is just not all there is. There's a role for solitude, but unless our waking up happens as an embedded part of the universe around us in relationship to each other and the earth, there's still a very subtle sense of what's called spiritual materialism, of spiritual ego. I did it. I woke myself up. Do you see? Do you see the danger of thinking we're on our own trying to become enlightened versus part of a whole web or community of relationship, of life? We're just part of it together. So how do we do that? How do we start inclining our awareness towards that sense of relatedness, given our conditioning? In every spiritual tradition that I've encountered, 
there's some formal means of community to support people in this waking up, to hold us. This formal sangha can take a lot of shapes. This is a sangha, us gathering tonight to support each other by having a form, a structure, a place, to have a group energy that really deepens a sense of presence. You might have noticed. There are f other forms of formal sangha. It can take the shape of a few people that you know are consciously practicing. It doesn't have to be the exact same style of meditation, but in some way to open their hearts and minds. And they gather to talk or to sit together and share in that process. The value of sensing companionship on the path it's hard to describe even in words. I mean, on one side of it, you can think of it, as I described earlier, as it really frees us from the grandiosity and the delusion that we're these separate egos liberating ourselves. We really get it that we're in this together with others, which is quite beautiful. It also helps to free us from shame and from a sense of deficiency to be together, to gather together and to share where we're at and to support each other. For the last probably six years, um, in addition to teaching classes, and I have a psychotherapy practice, I've also been leading groups, these kind of smaller healing sanghas, um, where the whole purpose is really to bring that kind of container of uh, meditation to hold a space for people to work on different personal issues. And I think one of the most profound values of it, and it's the same thing with 12-step groups and other um, healing groups, is that the more we share what's difficult with each other, the less we own it and possess it, the less we're a victim of it, the more it's like, here we all are, and we all are struggling with the same difficulties. There's a real releasing of shame in that. Rumi writes, we are the night ocean filled with glints of light. We are the space between the fish and the moon while we sit here together. There's a magic in gathering that wakes us up out of feeling separate. So there's a formal sangha. There's the ways that we seek to associate and, and get support on our spiritual path. And then there's the informal sangha, which are the people of our lives that we're with a lot. And you might for a moment bring to mind who that is for you, because we'll be doing a few guided meditations having to do with our informal sangha. So taking a moment to reflect who the beings of your life are right now, family and friends, people you work with, who you're around with any regularity. One of the things that often can bring up the most sense of remorse is that we get so habituated with the people of our lives that we forget to really let them matter and to really be there with them. I know that's true for myself, that I can watch days and weeks and months go by and find that I've, I get into routines and I just don't pay as much attention. I've described to some of you a a hug exercise taught by Thich Nhat Hanh. I'll, I'll describe it again because I love it. And in this exercise, two people stand face to face to, with each other, and first with palms together, looking into each other's eyes, look to see the divine in each other, to honor the divine in each other, and then hug each other. And as they're hugging, they reflect, I'm going to die you're going to die, and these moments we have together are absolutely precious. 
These moments matter. So there's, there's kind of two parts to that, that way of being together. And one is that sense that it's all so fleeting, that this tonight, these beings tonight, this matters. It's not random. We're here together. That who you see tomorrow, it matters. This is all passing very quickly. Why not be here for it and let our hearts open and connect? So there's that sense, and it's what Don Juan described as death as an advisor, or sensing the temporariness that really lets us feel preciousness, that it's sacred. So that's one part, letting the people of our lives matter, remembering. The other is at the very beginning of that hug, if you remember, is that looking into another's eyes and looking to see the divine. We so often make ourselves small and make each other small. You know, we, we forget to look and see what's really there and get in the habits of kind of reacting off of personalities and neurosis. And there's nothing wrong with the personalities and the neurosis except there's more. There's a radiance and creativity and beauty that illuminates each being that we sometimes aren't awake enough to see and it takes intentionality to look again. I just recently saw Don Juan DeMarco on video. Some of you might have seen it. I loved it. <laughs> it's a great, great movie. One of the parts that struck me was when he was describing how his way with women. And, um, and the way he described it is that when he was with a woman, he would just behold in her the glory of her womanhood. He would see her beauty and see her creativity and her radiance and just be totally mesmerized by it in a sense. And his bearing witness to it the way he did, he said, brought it out of her. So she danced her beauty and danced her glory and her femininity and her radiance. And so it is when we, when we offer the gift to each other of really looking into someone's eyes and seeing their beauty, we bring it alive. It helps them connect to it. We can do that for each other. It takes intention just because we're conditioned not to. We're in a habit of not looking. So in that spirit, I'll just to take a few moments to do our first of the guided meditations, which is a quite simple one, um, just to sit in a way that you feel alert. And as you settle and become still, consciously relax through your body. And you might help that along by assuming the half smile of the Buddha. That's what Thich Nhat Hanh describes as smile yoga. It's a very slight smile at the mouth that allows the rest of you to relax a little more and can open us to that spirit of gentleness, of kindness that is really our nature. So feeling the half smile, relaxing through the body some, letting that smile move down into your heart. And bringing to mind now someone of your informal or personal sangha, someone that's dear to you, family or friend, And as you do, taking these moments to just to simply see their true nature, the radiance, aliveness, beauty of their being. You might sense their eyes and their heart. Perhaps an awareness of their love for you, their capacity to love. What brings up their joy? 
their capacity for appreciation. The one who knows that's looking at you through their eyes. Seeing the sparkle of the divine in this other. And if you'd like, bringing to mind someone else and someone else in your own way at your own pace now as we sit quietly for a few moments. And in these last few moments, bringing that same awareness to your own being, a definite part of your sangha, the life within you, sensing in that life, Buddha nature, the awakening, the loving heart, that which is sacred within. this as with any other guided meditation if it's difficult if there's resistance then simply rest in the intention to see what's beautiful let it be your intention because there's a great power to that a real beauty to that so taking a few deep breaths now and coming back With this kind of a meditation, as with any of the metta or loving-kindness practices, you could do it for weeks and months and months and, and continue to go deeper. It can be a whole way of living to look and see God, love, radiance, wherever you look. And all we're doing is beginning to open to what's there and let go of our old conditioning to see things in a small way. Over the Christmas holidays, I was um, with my family in New Jersey, and we went to a service at the church there, which was a Unitarian church. And the minister read a story that I loved, and I want to share that story with you tonight. And it's about a group of children that were definitely labeled as bad kids. And they're, na they're from a family called the Herdmans, and they were considered to be, quote, the worst kids in the history of the world. Ralph, Imogene, Leroy, Claude, Ollie, and Gladys. They 
were bullies and they'd gang up on other kids and they were nasty and threw stones and stole and they were difficult. Their dad, as you might imagine, was off in jail. Their mom was rarely around. So one year, and this was in a small town, uh, every year they'd have a Christmas pageant and pretty much the same kids would take all the leading roles. One year, the herdmans heard, and this wasn't true, but heard that if you came to the practice for the pageant, you'd get a lot of sweets and treats. So they showed up, and then, and then this was the night that they were volunteering for the, taking the roles in the pageant, and then demanded that they get the lead roles. Now the other kids in the community were so afraid of this clan that nobody else wanted to take a role in the pageant, and so they were handed over to this gang of unruly kids. Imogene was going to be Mary, Ralph was going to be Joseph, others the wise men and the angel of the Lord. Well, the community went up in arms and tried real hard to get the minister and the director of the pageant to not allow this unruly gang to play these parts, but they couldn't change it around. It was too late. And it was a really tough time between Thanksgiving and Christmas. For the first time in history, money was stolen from the birthday donation box, and Imogene was caught smoking a cigar in the bathroom. Things happened. Finally, the big night came, and I'll read you a description of what happened. Everything settled down, and at 7.30, the pageant began. While we sang away in the manger in the chorus, the ushers lit candles all around the church. After we sang two verses of O Little Town of Bethlehem, we were supposed to keep humming it while Mary and Joseph came in from the side door. We hummed for a very long time until we sounded like a lot of old refrigerators, but they still didn't come. Then finally they stepped through the door, not pushing and shoving each other, but quietly for a change. They just stood there for a minute as if they weren't sure they were in the right place. They looked like people you see on the six o'clock news, refugees sent to wait in some strange, ugly place with all their boxes and sacks around them. Suddenly it occurred to me that this was just the way it must have been for the real Holy Family, stuck away in a barn by people who didn't much care what happened to them. They couldn't have been very neat and tidy either, but more like this Mary and Joseph. Imogene's veil was cockeyed as usual and Ralph's hair stuck out all around his ears. Imogene had a baby doll, but not cradled nicely in her arms. She had slung up over her shoulder and before she put it in the manger, she thumped it twice on the back like maybe the baby had colic. When Leroy, Claude, and Ollie arrived as the wise men, they weren't bearing the traditional gifts of the wise men, but instead the big heavy ham the herdmans had, received, had brought from their own food basket they had received from the church's charitable works committee. The boys must have thought it more of a practical gift for the traveling family. And when the angel of the Lord, Gladys, entered the stage from behind, the angel choir with the only words anyone spoke in the whole pageant, hey, unto you a child is born, she hollered as if it was for sure the best news in the world. And the shepherds trembled, sure afraid of Gladys mainly, but it looked good anyway. Well, it was the best Christmas pageant ever. And this was the funny thing about it all. For years, I'd thought about the wonder of Christmas and the mystery of Jesus' birth and never really understood it. But now, because of the herdsmen's, it didn't seem so mysterious after all. When we came out of church that night, it was cold and clear. I thought about the angel of the Lord, Gladys, with her skinny legs and her dirty sneakers sticking out from her robe, yelling at all of us everywhere, hey, unto you a child is born. We write off what's possible. We do that in our personal lives about ourselves, who we can become. We write off each other in different ways. We really make small what's possible. 
So it's quite a gift when we can bring our heart and mind and the intention of our being to seeing what's there in each other and ourselves. What happens is we begin to respect life wherever we see it. We stop writing people off so much. It's quite an old way of being conditioned to look at some people's better and some as worse up and down, higher, lower. You know, we make those separations. So really much of this path of taking refuge in Sangha is really opening ourselves to respect all beings, the dignity of all beings. There's a story that Jack Cornfield told at the New Year's retreat, and in it, it was described that this boy and his family were at a restaurant for dinner. and. The, everybody was ordering when the waitress came over and the, the boy said to the waitress, I'll have a hot dog, french fries, coke, that kind of thing. The parents said, oh no he won't. He'll have meatloaf and potatoes and broccoli and a glass of milk. At which point the waitress looked over at the boy and said, what do you want on your hot dog? <laughs> parents didn't say anything. She went away and he looked at his parents and said, you know, they th she thinks I'm real. <laughs> it's really easy to not sense the needs of others as being as compelling as our own. I find that in the way parents treat children a lot, that there's an assumption that because you're the adult, your needs are more compelling, more important, more valued, just, you know, meant to be honored. And it's hit or miss whether the child's needs are really listened to and experienced as mattering. And when we do that, although we think we're devaluing just the child's needs, we also have the habit of devaluing our own inner needs, the needs of our own inner child. So again, so much of this practice of taking refuge in Sangha is really honoring the life within ourselves and each other and listening really listening to where the needs are, listening and seeing where the vulnerability is in any being that we meet, sensing suffering. This is the practice of compassion, to be able to look at each other and have enough presence that we can be with where the pain is also. We tend to pull away. So with that in mind, I'd like to move into the next guided meditation, Again, if you'll sit up, please. And again, allow yourself to go within by relaxing through your body. See how fully you can Really feel the life of your body this moment. Feeling your heart. So that as you breathe in, the breath touches you in the heart area. Breathing out, letting go some. And as before, bringing to mind someone that's part of your informal sangha, someone that you care about. And this time, as you sense their presence, allowing yourself to reflect on their vulnerability where their hearts are tender, where they might be hurting, this being's hopes and fears. Sensing the needs, the wants.
And as you do, allowing yourself to experience this person with your heart, letting a sense of their vulnerability touch your heart. Bringing in someone else if you'd like. Sensing another being's presence with their vulnerability, their needs, their fears, their suffering, their pain. holding this being and their suffering in a space of compassion, of heart. Taking these moments in silence to call in to the presence of others if you'd like. And then finally, opening to a sense of your own being, feeling into your own tender heart and acknowledging being with where the suffering, the vulnerability is in your own being. Bringing presence and care to your own suffering. Taking a few deep breaths now, please. And gently bringing yourself back. That's right, good, and opening your eyes. The two qualities that we develop in meditative practice as we sit are the capacity to see clearly what's here and the capacity to hold what we see in our hearts. Clear seeing and compassion. And we bring that to the life within us and around us. This is the essence of relating to Sangha. So it's how to really see what's there, to see the beauty that's there and to see the suffering that's there both. To honor what's beautiful, to hold and care for where the suffering is. When we do that, it's possible to live in quite a kind and and joyful way with each other. I'd like to read you, this is written by um, Herb Cain. He's 86, and he writes, At 86, Rose and I live by the rules of the elderly. If the toothbrush is wet, you've brushed your teeth. If the bedside radio is warm in the morning, you left it on all night. If you are wearing one brown shoe and one black shoe, you have a pair just like it somewhere in the closet. (laughs) Try not to mind when a friend tells you on your birthday that a case of prune juice has been donated in your name to a retirement home. (laughs) He writes, I stagger when I walk and small boys follow me, making bets on which way I'll go next. (laughs) This upsets me, children shouldn't gamble. Like most elderly people, 
We spend many happy hours in front of the TV set. We rarely turn it on. You know, we're all growing old with each other. It's kind of we're keeping each other company as these body minds do their thing. And it can be a growing old together that's tender and kind and beautiful when we're willing to just simply see the true being that's there, when we're willing to really have compassion for where they're suffering and see what's there. And what really is required, and this is difficult for many of us in this culture, is to be able to get into the flow of asking for help and offering help. It's hard in this culture. We're, we're afraid if we give away something, we'll be giving away the store and we'll have people dependent on us. We're afraid if we ask, then we'll become dependent and there's shame around neediness. There's a lot around that. But just to go back to the story of the Buddha again, he woke, he was awo awakened, and yet Mara was still there until he asked for help. He put his hand on the earth and asked the earth goddess for help. There's a tremendous power to feeling our need or our longing and to calling out from that, to asking for what we need. This doesn't mean asking in a demanding way, but it means whether it's a prayer to the universe or asking a friend for support, it's that willingness to receive, to be helped some, that can really free us, that can open us up. Rumi writes, and this is a poem called Cry Out in Your Weakness, a dragon was pulling a bear into its terrible mouth. A courageous man went and rescued the bear. There are such helpers in the world who rush to save anyone who cries out. Like mercy itself, they run towards the screaming, and they can't be bought off. If you were to ask one of those, why did you come so quickly? He or she would say, because I heard your helplessness. Where lowland is, that's where water goes. All medicine wants is pain to cure. And don't just ask for one mercy. Let them flood in. Let the sky open under your feet. Take the cotton out of your ears, the cotton of consolations, so that you can hear the sphere music. To ask. Frequently, it's just this ongoing prayer in our hearts that we're just saying, OK, universe, because we're part of the universe. And there's a very interesting and beautiful thing that happens in prayer. We think we're praying to something outside us. Frequently for me, I'm kind of praying to the bodhisattva of compassion, to the energy of love in the universe. But in a moment of praying, of reaching out, of opening to, we connect with that universal force in our own hearts. It's a way of reconnecting to open and to ask. Um, this weekend, I read a book called Nobody Nowhere by Donna Harris, who's a woman who was born as an autistic person, and it describes her struggle. She writes towards the beginning, this is a story of two battles, a battle to keep out the world and a battle to join it. Aren't we all in that? that in some way we're always trying to protect ourselves and keep our space, and in other ways, our deepest longing is to connect with the world. The beauty in this story is that she had to ask for help to join the world, but she had to do it in very indirect ways that kept respecting her fragile nature within. My sense is we are not here to do it alone. And yet there's a, real, um, there's a real dicey thing about how we ask for help and how we offer help. We're not here to feel the joys of being awake and not in some natural way want to extend. The Buddha, after he asked for help from the earth goddess and after the forces of Mara retreated, still wasn't complete in this process because then he next had to go and share and teach and heal. So we're meant to receive and to give. It was a real beautiful ending to Donna Harris's book and how 
after she had gone through this battle to become part of the world, a description of reaching out to a little autistic girl. And because she had been inside that very painful world, she knew how to reach out in a way that she could hold hands with this child. It was, it was quite a touching ending. Rhea Khan writes, Oh, that my priest's robe were wide enough to gather up all the suffering people in this floating world. To be able to ask for help and to be able to hold others in our own hearts. Where it gets tricky is that we're not here to offer what Trungpa calls idiot compassion. You heard that expression, idiot compassion? It's not about the kind of kindness where you're always trying to protect other people from being hurt. So it's easy that we can, in the spirit of trying to be generous and helpful, really try to control other people's experience so they don't live and learn what they need to live and learn. And on the side of receiving, it's not about becoming dependent on other individuals to offer us the package we think we want. We all have a formula for how we think we want to be loved and given to. So it's really about letting go of all of that and in the deepest way, connecting Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.